This is the national anthem of the Czech Republic. In English, it's called Where My Home Is. Can you say it in Czech, Gidon? Yes, of course. Gde domov můj. So here's what happened. I met Gidon Lev and nothing was ever the same again. Hi, this is Julie Gray, and these are the true adventures of Gidon Lev. Kalevivari is a name that rolls around on my tongue like something sweet, like the holiday season. It's more widely known as Carlsbad, its German name. The Czech Republic is cupped on its north, southeastern, and southwestern sides by Germany, and bordered by Poland on its northeastern side. It sits north of Austria. Slovakia is directly to the southeast. It's interesting how the tumbler of time has arranged and rearranged European empires, dynasties, and nations over and over again, In my lifetime, many countries have disappeared into new ones. Former Czechoslovakia is one of those, splitting in 1993 in the Velvet Divorce into Czechia and Slovakia. Yugoslavia is now Bosnia and Herzegovina, Croatia, Serbia, Slovenia, Montenegro, and North Macedonia. The former Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia were both parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, as were Hungary and Austria, and others. It gets confusing. Gidon's family were from all over the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They came from Vienna and various small villages that dotted the landscape all the way to Karlovivari, which is in the C-shaped region that borders Germany. During the 20th century, this area came to be known as the Sudetenland, so named after a mountain range. In 1921, it was estimated that more than 3 million ethnic Germans lived there. This population saw itself as different, as German rather than Czech. The fact that they lived side by side with Czechs was not a big issue. Until it was. With the rise of Hitler, who sought to rebuild a German empire, i.e. Reich, German inhabitants of the Sudetenland saw a chance to be reunified with Germany. Many of those German Czechs were enthusiastically on board with Hitler's hateful anti-Semitic rhetoric, Things heated up with the rise of Hitler, and in the 1930s there were pogroms across the Sudeten. Jews living in this area were not large in number, comparatively speaking. Still, as their German-Jewish counterparts lost their rights in the Nuremberg Laws, they must have been terrified. Anti-Semitism wasn't new to European Jews, though. It was forbidden for Jews to live in Karlovivari for almost 300 years, from 1499 to 1793, after which Jewish peddlers were allowed to do business and be on their way. A permanent Jewish presence in Karlovivari didn't gather any kind of momentum until after 1848. It must have been sometime around then that Gidon's ancestors arrived. My mother was born in Karlsbad, in the Czech Republic, the part that's called Sudetim. My father was born in Mosht, a village not far from Kazbat, I think north east of Kazbat, and so was my grandfather. My 
other grandfather on my mother's side was born, I think, in Marinbad, but I'm not sure. Also, his wife, my grandmother, comes from Vienna, where I believe she was born. In Europe at that time, and for centuries before, Jews were considered Jews first, then conditional sub-citizens, depending on social whims and political expediency. This conditionality was shared by Jews throughout Europe. Whether religious and living in small villages, shtetls, in Eastern Europe, or secular, typically in the more urban areas of Western Europe, Jews were at times merely tolerated and at other times savagely attacked in pogroms. Surely in the modern age of the 1920s and 30s, anti-Semitism would fade away, wouldn't it? Hope, as Thucydides said, is an expensive commodity. It's better to be prepared. Karlo Vivari is not far from Prague as the crow flies, about 70 miles. But the day Gidon and I traveled there in our rental car, over miles and miles of countryside, there was road work. A lot of road work. Traffic ahead. But it didn't seem to bother Gidon. The closer we got to this western part of the Czech Republic, the more animated he became. He had already told me again and again how beautiful it was, the place of his birth. How wooded, how spectacular, how historic. From what I could see out the window, I was beginning to have serious doubts. I saw nothing but miles of flatland and fields and road construction. The villages were few and far between and looked stuck in time, and not in a quaint way with the indeterminate architecture of a vaguely post-Soviet kind. The farther we got from Prague, the more uneasy I felt. I had read about the current rise of anti-Semitism in Europe, and in the Czech Republic as well. We looked for a place to eat lunch in yet another village that had seen better days. We sat down in a dark, mostly empty, pub-like restaurant with some locals who were drinking a beer at a table in the corner. They glanced up at us inquisitively. Whether they were unaccustomed to tourists or merely curious, I did not know. I found myself hauling out all the stereotypes of Eastern Europeans, big-boned and muscular, pale, a bit flabby, hard-edged, and vaguely thuggish. Where had I gotten such ideas? Too many movies, I supposed. I wondered what would happen if I said that Gidon was from there, that he was a Jew, that he'd been in a concentration camp, that his family had been murdered. Would these locals be interested or defensive? Why did I even have that train of thought? Should they feel guilty or responsible for something they likely had nothing to do with? It was a little bit strange. It sort of gave me a feeling like these people are not friendly. And if I would tell them that I was born not far from here and that I spent years in a concentration camp and that I was a Jew, I'm not convinced that they would be impressed and friendly and express anything towards me that felt like warmth and perhaps even sorrow. Gidon was right. Karlo Vivari is incredibly beautiful. It is located at what amounts to the bottom of a densely forested ravine, with a river winding through it. A mile or two away is the larger, more modern city that the tourists skip. Nestled as Karlo Vivari is in such alpine geography, 
It reminded me of the part of Northern California where I had grown up. Scents of pine needles, tree sap, moss, rustling rivers, and dying leaves wafted over everything, as did the smell of sulfur. The big draw in Carlo Vivari is and has been for hundreds of years the mineral water hot springs and geysers. Famous figures from history who came to Carlo Vivari for the health benefits of the water include people like Johann Wolfgang van Goethe, Frederick Chopin, Ludwig van Beethoven, and a long list of now obscure European royalty. Taking the cure in the form of balneology was all the rage. Carlo Vivari is a spa town, all right, but not the kind I'm accustomed to with mauve carpeting and piped-in music and hot stone massages. Nope, this is old school. The main street is lined with spas touting not just the health benefits of the water, but numerous other health treatments as well. Things like the cleansing of toxins and minor medical procedures that are, I'm quite sure, probably illegal in most places. The stately Imperial Hotel, built in 1912, overlooks the town. White and very Stephen King-esque, it was designed to help some of the 70,000-plus annual tourists who came to visit Carlo Vivari, previous to the First World War, find more luxurious digs. I was particularly keen to see the famed Grand Hotel Poop. I know it's not pronounced poop, but far be it from me to skip an opportunity for humor on this emotionally arduous trip. In any event, the Grand Hotel Poop is purportedly the visual inspiration for the Wes Anderson film The Grand Budapest Hotel, and the resemblance is clear. To be fair, though, the Imperial Hotel looks quite similar, so this Hollywood myth might have some holes in it. Inside the lobby of the Grand Hotel, there was an enormous stylized photograph of Morgan Freeman, who apparently is a fan of the Grand Hotel Poop, as were many other celebrities whose names are engraved on little gold stars that litter the hotel driveway and sidewalk like a walk of fame. I wondered what this now-thriving spa town had been like just after the war, whether the spas were still open, and if they were, who went? They weren't, I later learned, and people didn't. The occupying Soviet army made good use of the Imperial Hotel, though, sending officers there for recuperation. Both the Imperial Hotel and the Grand Hotel Poop had been nationalized during the Soviet era. In the 1990s, as the Soviet Union began its fall apart, the hotels were privatized for pennies on the dollar. The getting must have been good. The end of the main drag that the Grand Hotel Poop occupies is populated by a decidedly wealthier class of tourists, enjoying gelato and luxury shopping experiences. The other end is comprised of mainly budget tourists, like Gidon and me. We strolled the streets, took pictures, bought Gidon a funny hat, and ate spicy sausages with horseradish, mustard, and pickles. I was struck by the incongruous fact that Gidon hailed from a resort town, a vacation spot. Well, when in Rome, as they say, I booked an appointment at the illustriously named Spa Number 5. We were in a spa town, and I wanted a spa experience. Guidon and I sank into deep stainless steel tubs of a decidedly medical nature. I snapped a photo of Guidon in his tub. In the picture, he's giving a big thumbs up and grinning. Later, we sat in the salt cave in awkward chaise lounges of the rickety variety. Valiantly, patiently, we tried to enjoy the benefits of sitting awkwardly in rickety chairs in a salt cave. It was clammy. At its height in 1930, the Jewish community in Carlo Vivari numbered about 2,200 Jews. In 1945, after the war ended, only 26 individuals returned. Of those, Gidon and his mother were two. 
the synagogue had been destroyed and homes and property were in the hands of other new owners, or perhaps occupants is more like it. But Gidon's mother had pluck, and the mover she and Gidon's father paid to move their belongings to Prague must have been shocked when a knock came on his door. He had skipped the delivery and stolen everything. Doris was there, a policeman in tow. She wanted her stuff back, and she got it. Ironically, had the man delivered the items as he was paid to do, it was unlikely that Doris or Guidon would have been able to recover any of it after they were liberated. Guidon did not recall whether the man was punished for his crime. Importantly, the family photographs were recovered. Without them, Guidon would never have known the likenesses of his great-grandparents, nor possess pictures of himself as an infant in the arms of his father. I can't really remember our lovely second-floor home except from stories my mother told me. She had spoken about the maid that had lived with us that took care of me as a baby, the bell my mother would ring every time she needed something done by the maid, and the busy streets, and my family's large used scrap iron lot, which was guarded by a frightening large German shepherd that I had to stay away from lest he bite me. The home where Guidon lived as a toddler is no longer standing, but Guidon already knew that. He'd looked for it a few years ago. But, he told me, the house where he and his mother lived for three years after liberation is still there. It had a horse stable downstairs, he said. This seemed to me minimally like odd zoning and probably an embellishment of Guidon's memory. But the morning that our GPS guided us over hill and dale, through narrow streets and over bridges, we indeed came to the building just where Guidon said it would be. In 50 meters, turn left. In 100 meters, turn right. In 50 meters, turn right. There was a dilapidated stable in the overgrown courtyard. Guidon seemed quite comfortable poking around, and if the house seemed smaller to him today than it was in his memory, he showed no sign. It was very strange to go back to the house where I'd lived for three years after the war. It sort of was abandoned. There was an old lady living in the apartment that I lived in, and actually I spoke to her. She didn't speak very much German or Czech. She spoke Russian, and my Russian is very limited. But it was interesting, and it brought back memories of how for the first time in my 10 years of living, I had, after the war, gone to school, which was just around the corner. This place must have been like heaven compared to the concentration camp. Yet his father and grandparents did not return with him. And Gudon would not know for some months what had happened to his father. I wondered how the neighbors greeted these ragged survivors when they came back to Carlo Vivari whether they were welcoming or suspicious, friendly or cold, guilty or conscience-free. While we were exploring, an elderly woman came out, curious about what we were doing. In his broken check, Guidon told the woman he had lived in the house years ago, after the war. Yeah, yeah, after the war, the woman enthusiastically agreed. I asked her name, but I've forgotten it now. I told her I would write and send her photos, but I didn't do that either. I'm not sure why. I felt bad about it for a while. Then I didn't. Only a couple of blocks from the house was where Guidon had attended school for the first time in his life. 
He was far behind his classmates, having not received any education for the previous four years. He was in a lower grade, too, and physically smaller than his classmates, after having been severely malnourished for so long. One day after the teacher stepped out of the room, a kid called Gidon a dirty Jew. Gidon punched him in the nose. When the teacher returned and saw the blood, Gidon told him what had happened. The teacher shrugged, and that was that. (laughs) The day we left Carlo Vivari, there were news cameras, booming music, and barricades outside our hotel. A triathlon was underway, and cyclists swooped intermittently through town to scattered applause. Inside, the concierge raced back and forth between the front desk and the parking garage. She was the only employee at the front desk of this Russian-owned hotel with more than 150 rooms. Many of the big hotels in Karlovy Vary were owned by Russians. The concierge said she was from Bulgaria and that, yes, she missed her family very much but was happy to have a job. She apologized for the inconvenience, but the management kept reducing the staff, she said. She gave us a business card and scrawled her mobile phone number on the back. That seemed normal. I tried not to let my imagination wander too far into the mists of the predatory post-Soviet privatization and probable conditions for the thousands of spa town workers in Karlovy Vary. Today was a new day, and we were headed east. Recalculating. Northeast, Gidon corrected me. Today was a new day, and we were headed northeast. When the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum first began to document the concentration camps, it was thought that the list would total about 7,000. Researchers discovered that, in fact, there were around 42,500 camps. Of those, 30,000 were slave labor camps, 1,150 were Jewish ghettos, 980 were concentration camps, 1,000 were prisoner of war, POW camps, and 500 were brothels filled with sex slaves. Thousands of other camps were used for euthanizing the elderly and infirm, Germanizing prisoners, or transporting victims to killing centers. For example, there were more than 3,000 camps in and around Berlin. Auschwitz alone had 15 subcamps. Terezin also had a subcamp, and this one was in Lito Mergesee, where Guidon and I stayed at the improbably named Hotel Roosevelt, only a few kilometers away from Terezin. Judging from their helmets and assorted gear, the other guests were cyclists, mostly older, slim, and lithe, with the kind of sun damage that made them look leathery. The cyclists were touring southeastern Germany and the northern part of the Czech Republic. Quietly, studiously, they dined on the copious amount of cold meats, cheese, and black coffee provided by the hotel. Yet again, I was struck by the normalcy of life so near to what had been a kind of hell only decades ago. Gidon and I swiped a couple of rolls for later, and I shoved them into my backpack, which also contained a roll of toilet paper for the tears I knew were inevitable. Today, Gidon would visit the place of so much pain and fear from his childhood, and I would experience my first visit to a Nazi concentration camp. I wasn't sure if I could be strong enough to give Gidon the loving support he would need. Our first stop would be the small fortress, which is two kilometers outside of the village of Terezin. The fortress of Theresienstadt was built about 240 years ago by the Habsburg Emperor Joseph II and named in honor of his mother. It's near the Elbe River and was built to protect the empire from Prussian invaders. 
When the Nazis annexed Czechoslovakia in 1938, the fortress and adjacent garrison village were efficiently put to use. The non-Jewish Czech residents of Terezin, who lived in the village near the fortress, were evacuated in stages by the Germans. The entire village needed to be repurposed to serve as a concentration camp. Because it had served as a military garrison in the past, the village was like a company town, if you will, with streets, shops, and apartment buildings, but also barracks for soldiers. On November 24, 1941, the first prisoner transport of 342 men arrived. The men were told that if they volunteered to upgrade the village and barracks before it was repopulated with more prisoners, their families could come and join them. They were not told that families would not be allowed to live together, that children over the age of 14 would live separately without their mothers and fathers, or that they would be slave laborers until they became too weak to be useful. Prisoners were denied the possession of money, medication, cigarettes, lighting, and any correspondence outside of the camp. The prisoners of Terezin were regularly subjected to being lined up outside in the freezing cold to be counted, beaten, and given orders. Guidon's father, Ernst, arrived on Transport J as prisoner 895 on December 4, 1941. Between January and February 1942, 16 young men were hung in the main square. Their crime? Trying to send letters to friends or family in the outside world. The population was forced to gather and watch. As we were working on the book, Guidon told someone that he indeed remembered the 1942 hangings in vivid detail. But on another occasion, he said he had no memory of these events at all. Gingerly I asked Guidon which it was— a memory or a blank. He was just a little kid, not quite seven years old, I reminded the both of us. A bit chagrined, Guidon admitted that all he really remembered was that on one particular occasion, as the prisoners were lined up in the courtyard and he strained to see what was going on, his mother suddenly yanked his head to her breast and the crowd gasped. That's it, he said a little apologetically. That yank, that gasp, that sense memory is something he carries with him to this day. Terezin was meant to appear to function as a ghetto, a Jewish village surrounded by walls with limited freedom of movement for the residents to enter or leave the village. But Terezin had no such freedoms. Prisoners were not allowed to leave, ever. The Germans went to great lengths to hide from the prisoners the fact that the main function of Terezin was as a transportation hub to the death camps. In fact, Terezin served many purposes for the Nazis. More than a transport hub, it was also a pseudo-ghetto, and as such, a valuable propaganda tool for the Nazi regime. In fact, in both form and function, Terezin was an awful kind of waiting room. Between October 1941 and May 8, 1945, more than 155,000 Jews passed through Terezin. Roughly 80% of those prisoners died. Fewer than 3,100 are thought to have survived. We arrived at an old, dilapidated train station, which was the end of the line. It was in a village about two and a half kilometers from Terezin. We disembarked with the German guards shouting at us, and we started walking, carrying whatever we could. My mother had two large suitcases and a blanket roll on her back. And I, a rucksack and a bag that was quite heavy for me. So we trudged along, 
my mother shouting at me to keep up, and I tried, but it was so heavy. I dropped a suitcase halfway along the way. I just couldn't go on. I needed a rest. Of course, I started to cry. Then, finally, a kind man walking next to me offered to help me out with the suitcase. And I was so relieved, even though my mother was fearful that he would not give it back to me. But of course, he did return it. Just as we arrived at the gate to the camp, that as far as I could see was enclosed by a high barbed wire fence. The Germans started shouting at us once again, dividing us into groups of 100 or so and took each group to one of the two-story barracks, which had a single entrance and iron bars on the windows. How depressing and horrible it all looked, and it was so cold. We children kept looking for our fathers, but they were nowhere in sight. My mother and I were assigned to room 212, together with five other mothers and their children. And as soon as we got in, we collapsed on one of the double bunk beds from sheer exhaustion and hunger. I climbed up to the upper bunk with the last ounce of my strength and fell asleep. A while later, we were ordered to the central parade ground, just a large yard in the center of the barracks, and told to bring a pot or cup or whatever for our first meal, a thin, watery turnip soup. The only good thing about it, as I recall, was it was wet and warm. When we asked about our fathers and when we would see them, after all, they had promised us reunion, didn't they? We were told we would see them only in the morning, and we should look out the windows around 6 a.m. So the next morning, a lot of us kids clambered into the window to get a glimpse of the men, as German guards shouted at them to march swiftly. I looked for my father and my grandpa, but sadly, I did not see either one of them that morning. The barracks that we were in were specifically for mothers and small children, younger than 10 years old. Fathers and grandfathers, older brothers or sisters were in totally different barracks, and we didn't see them except when we looked out the windows and watched them march by going to work. Terezin is not that far from Prague, about 43 miles. Another 60 miles north is Dresden, Germany. The distance between Terezin and Auschwitz in Poland is 312 miles, or about 5 hours and 40 minutes by car. Auschwitz was one of the main destinations for transports out of Terezin. The small fortress of Terezin was used to torture political prisoners, escapees, and other troublemakers, and where numerous executions took place. Now it has an adjacent parking lot, which on the day we visited was populated by two or three tour buses. Nearby was a brisk micro-economy of small kiosks selling water, snacks, and maps. The presence of tourists made me glad, though. This was an odd corner of Europe to tour. You'd have to be visiting Prague for it to be convenient to go to Terezin. These people had opted to spend a day here, I thought, when they could be at the Mucha Museum or having coffee on the banks of the Valtava or buying Czech glass. 
Tour guides speaking Spanish, Italian, English, or Russian expertly guided groups through the place at a rigorous clip. It's all pretty overgrown, but one relic looked to be refreshed regularly. Arbeit macht frei is painted in large letters over the entrance to the central courtyard of the fortress. Translation, work makes you free. The letters are black, the background is white. It stopped me in my tracks. I'd never actually seen these words in real life. I felt a surge of white, hot rage. Work makes you free? I looked around for Gidon, ready to swoop him up in my arms, because surely he was overwhelmed too. But he was some distance away. He'd stopped to chat with a group of student tourists who were gathered around him with interest and admiration. Gidon was doing all right emotionally, or so it seemed. I wasn't sure how to behave or what to feel, but I wanted to respect Gidon's boundaries and his unique way of being. Hunger. It never left us, not by day and not by night. My mother worked in a factory, splitting mica into thin slices that the men had mined nearly for 12 hours a day, starting at 6 a.m. They marched to work, and they marched back every day. I hardly saw my mother. My father, I only saw two times in the almost four years that he and I were in the camp. In the camp, even us kids worked. In some ways, this actually helped us to survive, giving us something to do. Since the kids in my barracks were younger than the rest, we were not allowed to go to any kind of school to learn to read or write. From time to time, we managed to find steel or bag for a piece of bread, or scrape the jam barrel for a bit of jam. One of our greatest fears was to be sent off to the east to one of the camps. We didn't really know that whoever was shipped to a place like Auschwitz, Dachau, Birkenau, Treblinka, or some other horrific camp, that the chances of them surviving were very small. We didn't really know that there were gas chambers, but there were rumors of things like that. And some people said, what do you think? The Germans are killing everybody by gas? It was known, and yet it was so horrific that it was almost unfathomable. And the Germans were fairly successful in keeping it a secret. Maybe they were afraid that if the people in the concentration camps, such as Terezin, would find out what was really going on, they would rise up and fight. But as long as the Germans left open a glimmer of hope for us, somehow we carried on. The various rooms in the small fortress are heavy, dark, and claustrophobic. The torture room has large, cruel-looking hooks in the walls at various heights. One has a pulley. As my eyes wandered unwillingly over these tools of torture, I imagined the screams, the iron smell of blood, and the muffled cries. Suddenly, I saw something from the corner of my eye. Up in the eaves of the torture room, starlings were swooping in and out of nests. There were half a dozen of them. How had I not noticed the fluttering of their wings? Outside there were more. Diving up under the eaves on the outsides of the buildings, they pulled bits of string and straw after them. Did you see the execution ground? Gidon had rejoined me. I had. 
Somewhere between 250 and 300 people were executed at Terezin, mostly by a firing squad. There were also hangings. The gallows are still there, as is the pockmarked wall against which prisoners were shot. The Nazis forced Jewish community leaders to form a committee of elders, which they called a Judenrat, to administrate their own imprisonment. The Nazis then created a flowchart, visualizing the various functions within the camp. The committee had to elect representatives to oversee the running of the camp. There were administrators, a health branch, workers, and technicians. While families had been separated by design to destroy the basic social unit and further dehumanize the prisoners, a new social fabric emerged stubbornly and created a thin veneer of normalcy. The Youth Welfare Office, headed by Egon Redick and Freddy Hirsch, two left-wing Zionists and experienced youth group leaders, did its utmost to make life for the children in the camp less harsh than it was. They sought to educate, amuse, and otherwise keep the children occupied in this horrible, inhumane, but they hoped surmountable situation. There were newsletters and activities. There were even sports leagues, this dorm against that dorm. The children played with balls made of rags. Some children were taught in secret about their Jewish heritage. The children were encouraged to create art and to write, and some even kept coded diaries. There were marionette shows and concerts. One small group of prisoners was forced to do more than administrate. They were forced to verify and catalog stolen Jewish religious objects for later use in a Nazi-planned Museum of the Extinct People. In Brom Presser's The Book of Dirt, he reveals that his grandfather, a prisoner in Terezin, had been part of this secret group called the Talmud Commandos. The Jewish Virtual Library explains a unique aspect of Terezin. Quote, there were so many musicians in Terezin, there could have been two full symphony orchestras performing simultaneously, daily. In addition, there were a number of chamber orchestras playing at various times. End quote. But why did Terezin, among all of the concentration camps, have such a disproportionately high number of artists and musicians? From the Jewish Virtual Library, quote, Notable musicians, writers, artists, and leaders were sent there for safer keeping than was to be afforded elsewhere in Hitler's quest to stave off any uprisings or objections around the so-called civilized world. This ruse worked well for a long time. End quote. In June 1944, under pressure, the Nazis invited the International Red Cross to inspect the camp. Ahead of the visit, Thousands of elderly, infirm, or sick prisoners were sent to the death camps so that Terezin wouldn't look as horribly overcrowded as it was. Then the beautification began. The Nazis forced prisoners to plant flowers, paint buildings, and otherwise make the village look normal and presentable. They also printed fake money and gave prisoners new clothes, all of which had been taken from them in the first place, to wear. They forced the musicians in the camp to put on a performance, and they filmed it all. Those who volunteered to appear in the film were told that they would receive special consideration for their trouble. In the days after the Red Cross visit, those who appeared in the film were transported directly to the death camps. Apparently, the propaganda film was shown four times to audiences unknown, but was never released to the general public. Today you can see the film when you visit Terezin. Watching it marked the first time during our visit that Guidon's determined facade began to falter. We sat there on uncomfortable wooden stools as the film flickered, our jaws slack. The soundtrack had rousing, happy music. The faces on the screen had strained smiles. 
Some faces looked outright bewildered, hungry, and scared. We knew we were looking at the faces of the dead. I wondered if Guidon recognized any of the faces in the film. I wondered if he or his mother, Doris, appeared unwittingly in a frame or two. I strained to look, but I didn't see them. I'm not sure I would have recognized them anyway. A part of the film shows a soccer game with a cheering crowd. I touched Guidon's elbow. Did he remember going to the soccer games? Yes, he said, without taking his eyes off the screen. But not that one. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe and follow for more. You can learn more about Guidon Lev at www.thetrueadventures.com and be sure to follow Guidon on TikTok. Special thanks to our sound designers, Andrew Macht and Victoria Sampson. Music composed by Nigel Kroon and Adi Goldstein. Toda Raba Eliran for being the voice of young Guidon. And Reva Doherty, we couldn't have made this episode without you. Thank you. <laughs>